Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Digital Kill the Radio Star. This is David. I am with not I'm without my usual co-host Chris, but going to have another guest with us this week. I just want to tell everybody first to follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed, on Instagram at Digital Killed the Radio Star. Follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes or podcast, and we're also on Earpeeler. So um, this week we have a special guest with us this week. A couple years ago, I was looking online for uh, through podcasts for John Karabi interviews, and I stumbled across uh, a segment called Albums Unleashed from uh, Decibel Geek Podcast. And they interviewed John Karabi for probably two and a half hours. And ever since then, uh, Decibel Geek has been required uh, listening uh, on my podcast list every week. So uh, I was lucky enough to meet the guys in uh, Nashville at the Podcast Expo. And then um, I was on their podcast a couple of months ago and met up with uh, Chris Sinzak, uh, in Memphis at a concert uh, two or three weeks ago. So uh, Chris Sinzak from Decibel Geek was kind enough to uh, join me this morning. So uh, without further ado, welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, man. How's it going? Oh, man, I can't complain. I got a day off and uh, a full day of football hopefully ahead of me. Well, can't go wrong with that. Can't go wrong with that. So, uh, Chris, we ask everybody when they come on this show two questions first. What is your earliest memory of music? And what was the first artist or band that just really kind of hooked you for life? Wow. Earliest memory of music. That's a tough one. Uh, Probably, it'd have to go back to, you know, hearing stuff that my parents were playing. Probably, I don't remember like one particular instance, but I guess my my dad was a salesman. So we either were moving or on sales trips a lot. So I was in the car a lot. And oldies radio was big in the 80s when we were growing up. And uh, I guess just hearing oldies uh, in the car on long trips with my parents. Like from the 50s and early 60s? Yeah. Uh, like I particularly remember like a lot of Motown stuff, you know, Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, The Four Tops. And of course, uh, but for, for, as far as, you know, my parents like intentionally introducing me to music, my dad uh he started teaching me my first guitar chords at i was around six years old and he had an acoustic guitar laying around the house and he had a lot of old songbooks from the 60s like he had uh the mamas and the papas greatest hits bob dylan highway 61 revisited uh beatles stones a lot of old you know and they were called fake books because they were just they were the easy way to, to phrase guitar chords and and he played a little bit back in the 60s uh nothing super professional he did have a one band that cut 145 but um he was uh, he went to vietnam and but he like he played a guitar through vietnam but so yeah i guess 60s era rock i guess is and motown stuff was my first earliest memory so you started at least attempting to learn the guitar at age six yeah and it's funny because you know the the basic chords he tried to teach me were kind of the standard chords for just about everything at least in the 50s which was c a minor f and g and i got c a minor and g down but i could never my fingers were not long enough yet to do an f chord so i was uh i could barely play a a couple of songs at six and then i kind of gave it up again for a few years and then around age 12 is when i i got my first electric guitar got serious about it you're uh, you're not alone with uh, problems with the F chord. Uh, when I, I I started playing when I was I think 13, and yeah. uh, I, I just don't have really long fingers. And uh, even to this day, I, I don't really play much anymore. But if I do, I kind of have to almost fake my way through that um, 
that F, F chord. chord. Yeah, kind of. Well, ha- it's yeah, it's flattening the flattening the first fret on those bottom two strings, and it'll still extending your your middle and ring finger. It's just hard to do at the same time. I know, and especially going from like that to a C, I wind up that, that the my finger still winds up hitting the bottom string, and it's just uh, <laughs> I, I you know maybe go to a bar chord for F on uh yeah on, on that one. So um, I know from listening to. Uh, Decibel Geek, you drop hints at times uh, about uh-huh. your uh, musical past. What, what, what exactly? I, I, I don't know the answer to this. Why I'm asking? Um, I know you were, you were in bands up until the last ten or so years. Am I correct on that? Yeah, I mean, on and off. You know, I it never. I mean, I never did anything of note. I, I played in. Uh, I guess my first band was high school. I was around age sixteen, seventeen. And uh, did that till I was a senior in high school, and we played a few clubs and local shows. But it was, you know, no, it was just pretty much for fun. But we did write original material, played some covers, and this was kind of at the height of grunge. So we did some Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and uh, stuff like that. And then uh, stopped for a couple of years. Well, anytime I stopped, you could just say a girlfriend came into the picture, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, but then uh, I would get, pick it back up with, it was the same drummer through the whole time, it was my best friend since childhood, Wes, who I want to get on Decibel Geek sometime because our uh, band stories and partying stories alone would be really funny to relay on the podcast because it, uh, it was some wild times back in the 90s. But, uh, but no, we did that, we played gigs, we did some recording in a studio, but it was more you know independent stuff, Not like we weren't signed by anybody or anything, but dabbled in the new metal movement did some new metal stuff for a while uh played in some local bands for that and then uh that it just kind of it never fully got off the ground we would we would get a few members in place but we never could latch on to like a singer was the hardest obstacle for the longest time and then uh when we eventually got a singer it was working out well and then he decided to reform his old band and then he left the band so uh kind of after that you know and there was me i moved across the country a couple times so there was just uh you know i would start and stop and start and stop but uh, it's always been more of a hobby but uh after that the last time was i guess 2004 2005 next 2005 i think was the last time i played in a band and we recorded a uh, song for a compilation CD that was put out by a website that I wrote for, and then I eventually took over, and the website was a local rock website, and then that eventually turned into the podcast. So that's how it all kind of links together. So did did you play lead when, when you yeah. played? Yeah. Well, the last band, it was I was the only guitar player, so I did it all. Uh, did you sing it all? Oh, no. Nobody needs to hear me sing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, I know from from listening to uh, your podcast, um, obviously you're a huge Kiss fan, and one of the great things I can say about your podcast and some of the uh, podcasts that you guys have kind of, well, that people have kind of, I guess you could say, have spun off the uh, family tree of, of Decibel Geek, it, are, are very, you know, Kiss-oriented. Now, uh, I may lose a lot of listeners here. I'm just an average fan of Kiss. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I know all the hits. I know most of the deep tracks from the 70s, but they're not somebody that I listen to a lot. And um, But I find it so interesting listening to your podcast and then um, uh, Podcast Rock City and uh, Potter Than Hell and uh, Growing Up Rock have a lot of Kiss content. I don't know what it is because... 
like I said, I'm just a casual fan, but I cannot stop listening to those podcasts about Kiss. And well, so, there's so I heard this on a sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I heard heard this on so I can't remember who it was. It was a different podcast, and my apologies to whoever did say this, but they said it really well. Where they said Kiss isn't my favorite band, but it's my favorite band to talk about. And like I think it's the same thing with on the listener side where. Kiss may not be my favorite band, but they are my favorite band to, to hear people talk about. Because so there's it's a fascinating history, even if you're not a, necessarily a fan of the music. Well, what's so great about it is this, there's this passion, and you can't you can't fake passion. And just hearing you guys talk about it, uh, I mean, I've gone back and listened to some some Kiss albums that maybe I didn't have or whatever because of that, but. It's just so uh, it's so refreshing to hear people be able to talk about it and talk about it in a long form and expound on things. And uh, even because your podcast, I forget the name of the book, but I went and read it. It's the one that um, all the members contributed to. It was about like the first oh, yeah. three years of Kiss, and uh, I found it so interesting. So my my question is, how did you get on the Kiss bandwagon? Oh well, well, and then to go back to your earlier question, the first band that really hooked me and made me a fan of like hard rock was poison uh Mm -hmm. they were i I got into poison from seeing the talk dirty to me video on mtv 1987 i think and um early 87 i got into them and they were like my favorite band for about a year and uh well i guess almost two years and also when open up say i came out i was a big fan of that too um but it was around that time that um I was just becoming a fan of the genre thanks to them. And, well, let's be honest, in 87, 88, Kiss was in the hair metal genre because they were totally trying to follow that trend at the time. So uh, the video for the song Reason to Live off Crazy Nights, and it's the power ballad, yes, I know, and I'm a wuss for saying that that's what hooked me was a power ballad, but I like power ballads. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Um, but that that video was what kind of... That piqued my interest. I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool song, and they, they look cool, and the video is cool, and the chick in the video is really hot, and, you know, it was just it was just a good combination. But I got into them from that song, and uh, it was getting played every day on MTV for like a week or two, which, you know, at the time, if, as a music fan, you're like, wow, Kiss must be really popular. They're on the, the countdown every day. Well, the truth was, Kiss's record company had like all their interns calling MTV to request the song. Um, which I'm sure that happened for every band that made the chart at the time, but it was like a, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. You think a band's bigger than they are. Kiss was actually at a pretty low point at that point, but uh, that was I was that video happened to be on one of the days on the MTV thing, and my brother walked in, and my brother was a casual Kiss fan at best. He was a casual rock fan at best, but he had some vinyl albums, and one of the ones he had was Alive, and he go he saw the video, and he was like Kiss, and I was like. Yeah, he's like, that's not really Kiss, though. And I was like, well, it's, it's, it says Kiss. There's a big logo behind them. And uh, that I'm pretty sure that's the singer for Kiss and, and the singing the song. And he's like, yeah, I know it's Kiss, but that's not really Kiss. He goes, hang on. And he goes in his room and he brings his copy of Alive out. And he hands it to him and he goes, that is Kiss. He goes, you need to, if you're going to get into Kiss, you should listen to this instead. So I get that. And for some odd reason, I, I, I'll still, I'll never forget. It. It's one of those things that's burned in my brain where, I took uh, the second, it was a gatefold double vinyl, and I took the second disc out and put it on side B for some I think I just put it out on whatever side I could and put the needle down at the beginning. And the beginning of side two is 
uh, Rock Bottom, which starts with, you know, that kind of a acoustic intro. Excuse my dog in the background. Oh, that's fine. Um, it, so is that acoustic intro? And at the time, I was like, oh, I don't know. That, that sounds kind of boring. I didn't give it enough time to get to the beat of the song. So then I put it on the, sec- on the next song, which is Cold Gin, and it starts with the whole rap about, I heard you people like vodka and orange juice, you know, and then... And it just intrigued me because I was like, "Wow, what is this?" You know, and and then when it get when it when Cold Gin kicked in all the way, and they start playing the song, that song is the song that truly like pegged me as a Kiss fan. Once that once that song was rolling, and then it went into Rock and Roll All Night and Let Me Go Rock and Roll, I was like, "Okay, this is my new favorite band." It's interesting that you talk about Reason to Live because I guess uh, you, me, and Sonny Pooney are the three that aren't afraid to admit we like uh, power ballads, but. Yeah. I love that song. Um, I do too. I, I think it's great. I think it's great, and I love uh, the crazy, crazy nights. I love that song. Um, yeah, and turn on the night should have that should have been a huge hit, in my opinion. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy because um, I feel like that album really gets dumped on by a lot of a lot of Kiss fans. But Reason to Live is a. I mean, did Desmond Child write that with them? Uh, it- no. Uh, well, actually, yeah, he did. He did. He wrote that one, and then Diane Warren wrote uh, "Turn on the Night." What's that? Yeah, "Reason to Live." I still love it uh, to this day. So, um, you, you're a huge Kiss fan, and like a lot of us, you started out liking Poison. I, I was kind of, I bought uh, "Look What the Cat Dragged In" and uh, "Slippery When Wet" pretty much about the same time, and uh, yeah. those were the two. And, and Poison. Um, uh, really, you know, up until they, I, I, I loved all their albums, especially uh, Flesh and Blood and uh, mm-hmm. Native Tongue. I'm a huge Native Tongue fan. I know uh, a lot of people uh, don't like that album. Did you? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not crazy about that one either. <laughs> did you? Did you stay on the on the Poison bandwagon until Native Tongue? Yeah, till then. I once CC was gone, my interest dropped because I I was a big fan of CC Deville at the time, but. Um, no, I, I loved them through flesh. I I was a fan through fle- flesh and blood, but honestly, by the time flesh and blood came out, I had moved on to heavier stuff. I got into thrash probably the year after, probably around '89, and uh, but I still liked all of it. You know, it's not that I changed teams. I would still listen to other stuff. I, it's just that's what a lot of people I knew from that time. They would like a, one minute they're a Rat fan, and then the next minute they're like, "Well, Nirvana's big, so I have to hate Rat now." I'm, I never subscribed to that way of thinking. I'm the same way. I I gave up a long time ago trying to uh, listen to something just because it was the end thing, or people said that's what you, you know what you needed to listen right. to. I just listen to what I like, and if I don't like it, I I don't listen to it. Um, yeah. So you mentioned grunge. Uh, we've talked a lot about on on this podcast. I, I'm not a Nirvana fan, and uh, when we were we had a podcast on rock trios, I finally came clean to my co-host Chris, and was like. You know, I just think I have this deep down hatred of them because they took they took away what I love because I love Alice in Chains, I love Soundgarden, I love Pearl yeah. Jam, but for whatever reason, you know, they're the ones that are credited with with taking away uh, you know, taking away our fun. And right. uh I just have this uh I don't know, this deep down um thinking that's never going to allow me to fully embrace them did you were you the same way or, or did you dive into that head first i didn't really have a hatred for nirvana and i still don't have a hatred for them i just never thought they were that great i just um they were okay i mean i give kirk Cobain creatively i think was great like he 
and if you listen to the stuff, you know, sure it was it was kind of toned down production and everything, and it it would you know grittier guitars, and he would you know he'd play a Jaguar guitar, which you know they're pieces of shit, but he would, uh, but he would play it, and you know, so there's like a lot of stuff that was kind of like let's do this to be ironic and cool, but um, at the heart of his songwriting, there was a lot of Beatles influence there, so, and I'm a big Beatles fan, so um, I didn't really have an issue with his creativity. I just thought he was an he was a hack guitar player at best. Didn't know that much, and I was a I was a big fan of shredding guitar players. So when when and especially around actually around that time, I was really into like Racer X and um, you know uh, Cacophony and Jason Becker and uh, Tony McAlpine and a lot of those uh, shrapnel guitar albums. So uh, when I would listen to those, and then I put on smells like teen spirit or something i'm like well give me a break <laughs> not that you have to be a shredder to be great because i also love the well and it's funny i love the ramones and the new york dolls and stuff like that now but at the time i i hated i didn't give it a shot because just because i was all about i wanted the technical guitar player that was my thing um but nirvana i never had a hatred for uh i just didn't really get why they were so big i thought it was it just seemed like they were the fashionable choice to like but I honestly remember seeing the Man in the Box video from Alice in Chains before I ever saw Smells Like Teen Spirit, you know, and and I thought, in my opinion, Alice in Chains was the first real grunge band that I that I remember seeing. Um, but I like them right away. That the main riff in Man in the Box is just kicking. Oh, they're one of my they're one of my favorite bands. I'll I'll argue with anybody that uh, the Dirt album is one of the you know one of the greatest albums of the nineties. It's great, but I'll take facelift over it any day, though. Really? I, I, so, I think, yeah. Oh, that, facelift. Facelift is the bridge, in my opinion, between hair metal and grunge. It's you've got because I mean, if I don't know if you've done your homework, Alice in Chains was a was a hair metal band before right. they switched to grunge. Right. Um. But the but that facelift album is more of a hard rock album than a grunge album. There's a lot of, you know, there's some major key playing on that album. If I want to put it in simple terms, but. Uh, it's definitely a different direction, but uh, Jerry Cantrell's guitar playing and Sean Kenny's drumming on that album is fucking fantastic. Well, you know, and they, I just got finished reading a book called Grunge is Dead, um, and this po- this podcast is going to af- air after a podcast that we're about to record tomorrow night on Grunge, and it was interesting what you said about them, you know, first being a glam band, because they... Um, they weren't very well liked to some extent amongst the Seattle scene because of that. And they would play with anybody that came to town. So, I mean, anybody that came to town, uh, needed an opening act, they would play for, they didn't, you know, they didn't care. They didn't, I don't think they were as protective of their, of, of that image as some of the rest of them. Um, talking about that, that genre of music, were you a big Soundgarden fan? Early on, I was. Uh, well, yeah, I guess when I think, if I think about, it, I really was into that because I, I, I remember "Louder Than Love" being interesting. I liked it, and then um, "Bad Motor Finger." I mean, I loved it like everyone else did. It was you kind of couldn't help but love that album because it was the riffs on it are so great, and in uh, Cornell's singing is just insane. It's just. I don't know. I it, anyone who talked shit about Soundgarden at the time, I thought was doing it more to sound cool. I don't know how you could not like them back then. They were uh, they were unique too. No one sounded like them. They that and then Super Unknown. I can see why um, people may not have may have gotten off the train by that point. I kind of did because 
if I hear Black Hole Sun one more time, I think I'm going to jump off a bridge. But uh, I agree. But, yeah, that's God. That song is so overplayed, and it's not even that good of a song. I've never understood why it was such a big hit. Um, <laughs> I'll take Fell on Black Days over that any day. But uh, but they were I, I like that album, but it about drove me it about drove me away. And then um, I thought Down on the Upside, which was their last well their last at that time album. Um, they were going through a really rough period, but I think it produced some really great songs on that record. They were, you know, they, they were more or less a heavy metal band, yeah. uh, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, toward the end uh, with uh, Super Unknown, it, like you said, it got a little more radio friendly. But it's a uh, man. It's a shame when you think about Eddie Vedder's really the only one left from um, the big, the big three or four, I guess you would say, from Seattle. Yeah, and I. And Pearl Jam, I, I love the Ten album, but I jumped off after that. I didn't. I mean, I could find a song on Vitology or here and there, and Versus had a couple songs. But as far as a whole album by them, I liked. It. And I've tried most of them, but the the first one was. I don't think they have ever topped their first album. See, I'm just the opposite. I cannot stand Ten. Really? Yeah, I I, I just I cannot stand. All right, so. Ten and STP Core, I do not like the other stuff huh. that they've put out. I love. Um, I never have understood the fascination. I know, I know. It's my, my co-host Chris gives me a hard time. My favorite Motley Crue album is the Karabi album. My favorite Warren album is Dog Eat Dog. You know, my well, I'm with you on the. I'm with you on those. <laughs> so, uh, well, actually, let's talk about those because um, your podcast has this. Just I think such a unique idea the albums unleashed uh series why don't you tell everybody exactly what albums unleashed is and and kind of how you guys came to that uh that concept uh well it and it's funny we didn't we <laughs> trying to remember how the i don't remember exactly how it came about but it was kind of like what other theme can we do and then i wanted to get i noticed on certain episodes the more niche we would get sometimes the better the results would be which you know you would your rational thinking would think, oh, the radio sucks radio show that where you play, you know, a wide variety of different sounds and tracks and bands would be bigger than a song, an episode about one album by one band. But it's the opposite. If you, the more narrow you get, it seems the better the results are. Um, and there was just a, like a, we, I think Aaron and I had been talking about like, you know, what do you consider a perfect album? Is there an album that you like where you don't skip one single song? And, you know, we, this is just like the typical discussions you have with your friends at the bar. And uh, we just started naming off albums we thought were great albums all from top to bottom. And, you know, you may be like, well, what about, you know, obviously, you know, Back in Black is a perfect album. But do we need, does anyone need to hear any stories really about it? I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of all been told. But then it was kind of like, well, what about underappreciated albums that we think are perfect albums? And a lot of those are kind of the... The one, a lot of rock albums that were released during the the grunge period, like Motley Crue, self titled, and Warrant, Dog Eat Dog, and they they were fantastic records. But the vast majority of people have never even given them a shot because of when they came out. And uh, so that's just kind of how the idea started. And then obviously we've got um, an absolute legend that's become an actual friend, which I never thought I'd be able to say that with Michael Wagner, and he lives you know twenty minutes from us and. Uh, was willing to have us out several times and we're hoping to go out several more. And, uh, the man's produced a number of those albums that we think are perfect albums. And, uh, it just kind of took off from there, but then we've had other people on to 
to do them. We and Toby Wright, who also lives here, we had we did Kiss Carnival of Souls with him, and um, but yeah, it's just it's just and it's funny. It's become one of our most uh, favorite topics to do, and probably the most popular theme that we cover on the show. Was was Karabi the first one that you guys did? Um, I don't know. I'd have to check. I, I no, I don't think that was the first one. I think I'm trying to remember what the first one was. I think it was maybe the Skid Row Saved of the Grind, maybe with Michael. I'm okay. not sure. I'd have to I'd have to go back and actually check which one was first. So how did how did the how did the meeting with Karabi come about? Because I, I hear y'all joking about <laughs> about being in a restaurant and and just kind of chilling out with him. Yeah. The, well, I mean, I, I interviewed John back in 2005 for the website I was writing, and uh, when he first moved to Nashville, and I've bumped into him at shows several times over the years. He's very, he's you know, he's to us, he's a rock star, you know, but probably in his view, he's not. But um, he's one of the most down to earth people you'll meet, and and I've bumped into him over and over again, and actually for his. Uh, Maybe his was the first because I remember he he was doing a he was going to do a show at a place here called Mercy Lounge and he was there was the first show where he was going to play the Motley album from start to finish and it was uh, the day of the show was actually the anniversary of the release date of the record and it was a total coincidence that it happened to be that way and uh, my fr- one of my friend one of Aaron and I's friends this guy named David Stonich is basically Karabi's best friend or at least was when he was still living here um david moved to florida since but um so and and david listens to the to decibel geek and he'd always said hey you know it'd be cool to get john on the show and i was like yeah you know any help you can give us let, let me know and uh he uh we he got us to go before the show backstage and you know we're talking to john in the backstage areas and i was like you know how does it feel like it's been you know, I think it was 20 years since since you've done, you know, since the album came out. And he was like, no, not at all. He's like, and it's really crazy that, you know, today's the day of that. And uh, I said, well, I want to have you on the show. And he said, yeah, that sounds good. And I said, and obviously, you know, you're a fan of podcasts. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are. Um, we all know that John Karabi, you could say, is a podcast all-star because he's been on everyone's show. And he's done, he interviews with everyone that asks him. And and then it's always kind of the same interviews, you know? So I, I was like, why don't we do something different though? Why don't we just talk about the making of the album and, uh, just do track by track, the story behind the songs, the songwriting, every, and I was expecting him to go, I'm so sick of talking about this album, F off and get out of here. Um, but he was like, yeah, that sounds good. And then it was kind of, it was just a matter of scheduling it then. And, uh, my, our friend David, he got us set up where at a bar here in East Nashville that John likes to go to, and we found this back room, which other than a loud fan in the back, but it was it was the quietest room in the bar where there's no music playing. And we just sat there and had drinks for like three hours and uh, went from start to finish. And all of us uh, staggered out of that bar that night. It was a it was a long, drunken night, but it was uh, some of the best stories I've ever heard about the making of a record. That's the great thing about podcasts. You can you can just sit there and. It's just guys having drinks in the back of a bar, and next thing you know, three hours have gone by, and yeah. you have three hours of great content. That was kind of how it was when uh, Chris and I interviewed uh, Todd Poole. Um, oh, yeah. We just uh, sat down with him, and next thing you know, 
you know, an hour had gone by and, and he had a prior commitment he had to go to. And he's like, hey, look, let's do this again. And so, uh, you know, the next time it's two hours gone by and uh, you don't, you know, like like we talked about with him, it's like we hit record and then we forgot we were doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. That's the best way, you know, and and I'm, I've told you before, my hat's off to both of you guys on those interviews with Todd. And I, I was jealous you got got him before we did. But at the same time, I, when I listened, to it, I was like, no, these guys were the perfect show to, to interview him because you guys had a, a much deeper wealth of knowledge about Roxy Blue than we did. And and you did so good at pulling stories out of him that I could tell he was kind of just remembering on the fly. And it was a lot of stuff he probably hadn't even thought about in years. Yeah, I appreciate that. That was actually the first interview we've ever done, um, and uh, we've uh, we've become we've become we've become friends with him. You know, he calls us or talk, text us, and uh, Chris went to the uh, Under the Radar album release party uh, as uh, Todd's guest a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I'm just really happy for him that uh, I think uh, he's about to to go. You know, Roxy's going to put out new music, but. Go moving on to another one more albums unleashed before we uh, kind of wrap this up. Um, Warrant Dog Eat Dog. I thought that episode that you guys did with Michael Wagner was just phenomenal. Oh, thank you, man. Um, uh, yeah, that was a fun one. It, it's 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 such a shame that that album, you know, people really don't know about because that is not. I don't consider that a glam album at all. No, that's a hard rock album. That that is just a, a a wonderful hard rock album that's uh, kind of all over the place. You know, you have the Andy Warhol was right, kind of a you yeah. know acoustic, and then you have you know obviously some you know some um, some feel good uh, songs on there like Machine Gun, but uh, Sad Teresa. I mean, it's just Janie Lane, man, what a talent, and I, it always kind of upsets me because I feel like he he got pigeonholed uh, as you know the guy that wrote Cherry Pie and. Let's be honest. In my opinion, Cherry Pie is one of the worst songs he ever wrote. <laughs> I agree. And you know, you listen to uh, there's a song <laughs> there's a song called "Stronger Now" on uh, yep. uh, Ultraphobic at the end. I mean, regardless of of what kind of music you listen to, it's just a perfect song. And yeah, the guy was just he was just phenomenal. What did uh did did Michael have any good Janie stories when you guys talked to him? Maybe uh, off the air or anything like that. Uh, I mean, he shared pretty much everything on the on the record with us, and I mean, it, but you could, you know, he uh, he has great memories of of working with Janie, and and you know, I remember him singing his praises as a songwriter and as a and also as kind of a producer because you know he he was one of the people that when Michael would get him in a studio, he had an absolute vision for how he wanted stuff to sound, and he was one of those special talents to where, you know, I, I don't know, you know, for anyone who believes in a higher power or not, if you do, it's, you, you could swear they're, they're channeling something from somewhere else. And I think he was one of those people where he, uh, he kind of knew just at the beginning of writing a song, how it was going to sound when it was finished. And that's, that, that's kind of uh, incomprehensible for somebody who isn't able to do that. Right. Uh, but that's that album i mean and you know you people want to laugh at me all they want i would put that album up there with a beatles album or or like a beach boys pet sounds type project because there's so many things going on in that record there's like pretty amazing background vocals there's effects there's there's little studio tricks uh and then of course the songs alone are just fantastic i mean it's 
like April 2031. I mean, what other, what hair band would write a song like that? I mean, that's uh, it's an apocalyptic song that is pretty uh, prophetic, unfortunately. I wonder if, it, if April 2031 is going to look like that. Uh, but uh, it's the album is incredible. Michael, uh, that was almost kind of a disastrous uh, album's Unleash, if I'm going to be honest with you, though, because Michael, you know, he's worked on probably over th a thousand projects and the way most producers are and he's no exception is when they're done with a project they typically never go back and listen to it they 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 move on and um not that they don't love the work it's just they don't have much much cause to go back and listen to it and um so when we got there well actually we we let me go back when we did slave to the grind you know it was more of a hard time getting uh, you know, memories out of him because he didn't remember as much and we, you know, we didn't go through the tracks. So Aaron Camaro, my awesome co-host, had a great idea who, you know, when we went over there, he's like, I'm bringing the CD with me. And I said, why? And he said, because we need to listen. We need to, if he's having, you know, trouble remembering, you know, maybe we should offer to, to listen to some of the tracks. And that's what we did. And Michael was open to it. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, we can play it and then maybe that'll jog something. And it, and it worked really well because we, you got you get to hear him remember the stuff as it happens and and you know i wish it was a video podcast for that day because there were several times where he would hear something he had completely forgotten about when they recorded it and just light right up and be like oh yeah we did this this and this and it was uh it was a special recording session and you know as a music fan uh, you know just like you guys probably have with todd pool it's like when you you feel like you're on the inside a little bit and like you never would have expected when you were a kid growing up listening to it, you're going to get to hear these types of stories, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's surreal to, uh, to say the least. And, uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention that, uh, Michael Wagner's one of the good guys. Uh, super nice guy. Yes. Talked talk to him about my, I walked in with him at the podcast expo. He like completely freaked me out. We're getting out of my car and I look at Chris and I was like, it's Michael Wagner. And I was like, we're going to walk in, literally walk in across this strip mall parking lot with Michael Wagner. Uh, and I talked to him about 10 minutes and he could not have been a nicer person. Yeah. Um, he's super, he's a great guy. All right, Chris. So we know that you're a huge kiss fan. So I'm going to exclude any kiss albums. Give me roughly two or three of your of your favorite albums of all time that aren't Kiss albums. Okay, well, the first one, which of course is on top of my mind with the sad news we got this morning, my first one is ACDC Power Ridge. Um, I'm guessing you've seen the news this morning yeah, already. Yeah, Malcolm died. Uh, yeah, uh, really sad loss, but uh, I guess we did kind of see that one coming. Uh, but no, uh, this is my all-time favorite ACDC album, and I would, if I was doing a top five albums of all time, for me, this would be one of them. Uh, came out in uh, 78, and I, I'm, I, pref I prefer the Bond era of ACDC. I do like a lot of Brian era stuff, but uh, this is, in my opinion, the height of the Bond era of ACDC. It's, there's, there's no frills. It's, it's not loaded with effects. It's just straight-up rock and roll uh riff raff as a guitar player i don't think they ever top that song i think it's the greatest guitar song ever written um but there's so many you give me a bullet rock and roll damnation down payment blues gone shooting sin city up to my neck and you what's next to the moon cold-hearted man and kicking the teeth there's no bad songs on that record every single one of those songs kills and uh yeah it's one of my all-time favorites do you think 
had he not died that they would have hit had the success that they went on to have? Maybe not. I mean, it's 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 possible they wouldn't. I don't know. I don't. I, although you know, Brian Johnson's not necessarily you know a radio friendly voice either. So right. You know, you know, had had uh, Mutt Lang come into the picture and they still did Back in Black with Bond, it, it might have been just as big. Who knows? Now, did they have a when they went to record Back in Black? Did any of that stuff date back to Bond? As far as writing, because they recorded it pretty soon after Bond died, yeah. correct? Yeah, I don't know for sure. And actually, it's funny you mention that because there's a Greg Renoff, our mutual friend of ours, has been pushing me to get uh, this guy Jesse Fink on the show, who just wrote a book about Bond Scott. And I, I think I heard that 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 book kind of tackles that that question because there's there's been rumors back and forth that you know that Bond demoed songs for Back in Black, but who? I mean, I don't really know. I, I do wonder. I don't know that he's. I don't think he's on any of the writing credits. But although I think Malcolm wrote just about everything, so I don't. I don't know. I would have to find out. I'd have to really dig into that. I'm not sure. My uh, my co-host Chris is a huge uh, Power Ridge fan, and he uh, he just got that Bond Scott book, and he said it's really good. Um, yeah. So all right. So Power Ridge. What's what's another one of your favorite ones? Oh, let's see. Been on a real. I mean, the last few years, Thin Lizzy's quickly kind of become one of my favorite bands. And I didn't, this is a band I didn't pay much attention to when I was younger, but maybe with just the benefit of, of age and wisdom, I've become a bigger fan of theirs. So I guess I would pick something of them. And this is why, you know, a lot of people pick Jailbreak uh, or Black Rose, which is, those are great albums. But the one that kind of, and this is just because this is the one that kind of lured me in and hooked me, I would go with Fighting, the Thin Lizzy record. Um, even, a, and like it starts off with the cover of Rosalie, which is a Bob Seger song, but I'll take the Thin Lizzy version anytime. But uh, for those who love to live, Suicide, which is a great song, Wild One, Fighting My Way Back, King's Vengeance, uh, Spirit Substance, Silver Dollar. Robbo wrote that. I'm not real crazy about that song. Uh, Freedom Song and then Ballad of a Hard Man. Outside of a couple filler tracks, I think that's a, pretty much a perfect album. And I just, uh, I love that. That's why, and like both the, the ACDC and the Thin Lizzy, these are two albums where if I play, if I decide I'm going to play one song from it, I end up listening to the whole album. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't work any other way. That's a sign of a great album. That's kind of my, that's my litmus test, so to speak, of, of you know if if an album goes from an eight to a ten, uh, that uh, you know you put it in and let the whole thing go. Do you feel like they're getting kind of a resurgence and not really a resurgence, but kind of they're becoming more appreciated as time goes on? I certainly hope so. I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't really around you know back in the day when they were popular or when they were doing it. So I, I'm not really the right person to ask on that. But certainly, I mean, I see. I know I've helped turn people on through my show by playing some of their songs. I just played them on this week's episode. Uh, played a song off the uh, shoot off the Renegade album, but uh, I don't know. I think maybe they're getting more respect as time goes on. Um, but they were a band that they didn't. They were kind of a square peg and a round hole type band. They didn't fit into any particular style. And even on within an album, you'd hear something that sounds like hard rock, and then the next song would sound like something you'd hear in a jazz club. So. And I, that may have been to their detriment, but I love variety like that. So those types of albums always I gravitate towards. I actually at the uh, podcast expo I bought Live and Dangerous on CD. Oh, 
That's um, a great line. I, I, I'm be honest with you, like you know, I just know the kind of the hits and uh, Chris has. That's one of his favorite bands, and uh, he he's really been uh, pushing me to to give him another chance. So I got Live and Dangerous, which I really like. Um, we may have to have you on because he wants to do a a Thin Lizzy episode, and and my knowledge base isn't quite as deep as uh, you guys. So we may have to have you on to do a, a Thin Lizzy podcast. I would be happy to. We still need to do a freaking Thin Lizzy episode of our show. Which I, I was, I told Aaron the other day, I was like, we haven't done Thin Lizzy, we haven't done the Ramones, and like those are like two of my favorite bands. And like if if I'm still allowed to mention favorite albums, um, the Ramones' End of the Century, I think, is pretty much a perfect album. It's a great, great record. Well, do you and Aaron do y'all ever disagree on um, a podcast episodes? Like we should we should cover this topic or this topic or Oh sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we differ on stuff we like, so I mean, yeah. There's definitely we have to do we have to compromise from here from time to time. One of the things that Chris and I have done that's that I really enjoy is we each pick a um, um, a artist that um, maybe the other one either is not a huge fan of or isn't that familiar with. And so mm-hmm. uh, I'm a huge black. The Black Crows are my favorite band of all time. So. He had to spend two weeks, and he listened to every uh, album uh, by the Black Crows and rated them. And then uh, Social Distortion is his favorite band. So I listened to every Social Distortion album. And then uh, he would rank his Social Distortion albums. I would rank them, and then we would you know, talk about it. And what we found was, that was interesting, both bands, you know, I had, I had a modest, you know, amount of uh you know background with social distortion he same thing with the crows every time our favorite cd and least favorite cd was the same for uh the same but in between it was all it was all over the place so we're, we're gonna do some more of that in the future and i think thin lizzy is one that he may uh ask me to listen to the uh the entire catalog so the ramones mm. I, that that's interesting considering you're, you're such a kind of a I doubt the Kiss and, and the Ramones would be hanging out together. Uh, Probably not, although if you want to hear one of the best cover songs ever, um, look up Kiss doing Do You Remember Rock and Roll Radio by the Ramones. It's 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 an amazing cover version. What, um, is, what, what is that um, on, that song? It, it's on a uh, tribute album that I think Eddie Vedder actually put it together. It was called We're a Happy Family, and it's... It's uh, a bunch of bands doing Ramones covers. Uh, it was, I think, it came out right after Johnny died. It was like a tribute to Johnny, and uh, there's a lot of great covers on that too. Uh, and I think even Pearl Jam does one of the cover. U2 does a cover of "Beat on the Brat." Um, but yeah, the the Kiss cover of that song, I think, I think it's better than the Ramones version, and uh, which I don't, it, which is hard to beat because the Ramones version's on "End of the Century," which I also love. Wow, so you just said that a Kiss version is better than Ramones. That's interesting. I'm definitely going to have to go listen to that now uh, when we get off the uh, get off the air. Well, let me ask you one more question, and 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 um, we'll let you go. You were talking about Kiss and covers. Uh, what, what is your thoughts on the? Uh, I'm drawing a blank on it now. It was a Kiss cover album in like '95. It had like Garth Brooks on it. Oh, uh, yeah, it's called Kiss My Ass. Yeah. What What are your thoughts on that album? Uh, mixed reviews. Uh, I was. I, I mean, I, I was in high school at the time, uh, around that, you know, the early to mid nineties. So to me, you know, a lot of people view that as a really low point in history, um, with the revenge album and, uh, you know, the, it was the non-makeup years and, 
Carnival of Souls and all that. But I, to me, that was a magical time as a fan because they really got more intimate with their fan base at that time because that's all they had left. You know, they weren't big on a mass scale anymore. And they were more humble and they were more fan friendly and they were playing deep cuts in the set list. And so that period of time, I was kind of, if Kiss put it out, I was into it. Alive 3, I loved when it came out. So when the when the tribute album came out, I liked it a lot. It was cool to see them get a lot of press with it because you had some big names on it. You know, Garth Brooks doing a Kiss song in 94 is a big deal because Garth was really on top of the world back then. Um, and Toad the Wet Sprocket, you know, they're a joke now, but they were a big band in that time. Um, so they got a lot of attention for it. Uh, I don't know that all the covers are great covers. There's like the Lenny Kravitz one I was really looking forward to. Um but it was a letdown for me. I thought it was just kind of okay. Uh, I love the Toad the Wet Sprocket cover of Rock and Roll All Night. It's turning it completely inside out, making it into a folk song. Um, and I'm so burned out on that song, I'd rather hear the Toad the Wet Sprocket version, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, but uh, Garth Brooks doing Hard Luck Woman is great. Um, and I remember I saw Kiss Live. Uh, they, they were playing the Gibson Guitars 100th Anniversary Show here in Nashville. And... They were headlining it, and uh, there was a rumor. I remember that whole week. The rumor was because the Kiss My Ass album had just come out, and the rumor was Garth's going to come up and sing with them. So everybody was waiting all night long for Garth Brooks to show up and play it with them, but he never did. But um, I remember. I'll just never forget that. And then, uh, but the big the the crown jewel on that album is Yoshiki of, of the band X in Japan doing the classical version of Black Diamond. I think that is a masterpiece. And and Black Diamond, if you're asking me what's the greatest Kiss song ever written, I think Black Diamond is that that song epitomizes what is great about Kiss with all the changes in it. You've got you've got Paul singing the beginning, you've got Peter singing the body or whoever the drummer of of the band is at the time. You've got a smoking guitar solo. Gene wrote the main riff. Paul wrote the melody. It's it's a perfect Kiss song, in my opinion. Yeah, I remember that when that album came out, that covers album, it was it, it got so much press because I think Garth Brooks may have performed on the Tonight Show. He did, uh, yeah, and so, they and they did. They also were on um, the Letterman Show, Kiss backing up uh, the Gin Blossoms. Uh, that's really cool. That's yeah. really cool. Well, Chris, uh, greatly appreciate you uh, taking some time out uh, on a Saturday morning to uh, talk to me for a few minutes. No, it was fun, man. I I'm happy you could have me on. I appreciate it. Uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you guys? Uh, we're just on the everywhere you can find podcasts. I guess iTunes and Stitcher. and I'm going to try to get us back on Spreaker. I know some people wanted us to go back on Spreaker, which we used to be on and then we dropped it, but we'll we'll do it. Um, just anywhere you can look up podcasts. Of course, decibelgeek.com um, is the home. That's the, the mothership. And there's a, lot, there's a YouTube channel that you can access through there. There's articles and CD reviews and live show reviews and album reviews and all kinds of stuff, uh, photo photo albums from we got. I think we're up to like forty contributors all over the world now for the website. So the web the the the, the podcast is being dwarfed by the website these days. So if you wanted everything, you can find is on the website now. It's a great great website, and I love the uh, the album reviews, especially uh, our boy Sonny Pooney. He always does a uh, a great job. I I was telling somebody the other day uh, about Decibel Geek, and I guess the best way to describe y'all, y'all are the Velvet Underground of podcasts. Y'all are the podcast that's uh, inspired a hundred other podcasts. 
Well, uh, I appreciate that. I hope we I hope we get more success than they did, though. <laughs> do, do you ever do, do you ever kind of pinch yourself when you when you think about how successful and I mean, you guys have a cult following. Um, it's uh, it it never fully. I never fully get it. I guess I I all I can say is thank you to anyone who's taken the time to listen and to have uh, so many shows spin off of it. You know, I mean that that makes me happy. And um, no, I just we got into this because you know we're rock and roll fans and we wanted to kind of help turn people on to what we like and and it's turned into other shows doing the same thing and you know I, that so much the better i think there's room for everybody and um i just yeah i just i love seeing everybody take off with their stuff and it's been fun to uh to be part of it but yeah i uh i'm it's definitely changed a lot in six years for sure what i have found just the short time that we've been doing it is there's a sense of community there's no uh, nobody's competing against one another. At least not not the people that I've met through your podcast. That maybe there may be some other ones out there that I haven't met that are that way. But everybody's willing to help one another. Um, it's very uh, it's a very cool thing to uh, to be a part of, and um, it's the it's the future of, of of media for sure. And you guys got in uh, at the perfect time. And like I said, you can count our show as one that was directly uh, directly inspired uh, from you guys. Well, I'm happy to happy we could help, but uh, yeah. So hopefully we'll have a a good time next year when we do Rock and Pod Part Two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> uh, are you going to get up and do the dance? Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I will. Um, I will for sure be there as soon as we have the dates. I'm going to go ahead and um, book our hotel room and uh, look forward to it and look forward to seeing you then, Chris. Thank you so very much for coming on. I hope you guys have a. Uh, uh, 300 more episodes. I know y'all just uh, celebrate your 300 episode. Go listen to that. It's uh, it's required listening. It's about two and a half hours, and uh, it goes by very, very quick. Yeah, and I, I don't remember the last half of it, but yeah, I should listen to it myself. <laughs> All right, Chris, <laughs> we really appreciate it. And uh, to everybody out there listening, I uh, hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. And uh, we're going to be somewhat sporadic maybe during the month of December with uh, releasing podcasts, but we have some big things planned for January. So everybody take care, and we'll see you later.